You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. take your Bibles and turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, and Lord willing, we'll look at verses 1 through 9 this morning, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, if you don't have a Bible, a couple of things, there are notes provided for you in the bulletin that has uh, the scripture references today. Uh, then also notes uh, and space that you can fill in as we go along to help you better retain the message. I do ask always that you search the scriptures with us um, and that you don't be afraid uh, to use that index, find where we're at. We, Genesis is the first book and uh, get to chapter 11 and make sure that we're preaching God's word to you. Um, we want an open Bible and an open mind and heart. And then also, uh, if you're watching online uh, or if you're present here in the service, you can download the version Bible app on your smartphone. That's Y-O-U version. Uh, after you download it, you can go to the More tab, tap events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Uh, click on today's service, the 9 o'clock service. And, and actually, I would encourage you, if you can, uh, to have both the notes out. You can get those. You can download those at uh, mtcarmeldemers.com forward slash notes and pull up the Bible app because there's a couple of pictures and maps that I'll be referencing today uh, that you might want to see. So I encourage you to do it. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And I want to preach a sermon that I've entitled Babel. Babel. Every one of us, says uh, Albert Moeller, live by the light of a story, a story that tells us about the past, explains the future, and situates us in the present. The unbelieving world promotes stories that are inadequate to explain humanity's origin, where we came from, and to establish objective, transcendent, absolute moral values. Not just opinions or collective opinions, but to actually say this is wrong outright. Natural and social evolutionists who think various people groups evolved from different groups of animals must admit that human diversity, the differences in races, is simply an accident, and opinions about racial inferiority or superiority are therefore valid. If there's no objectivity or design or purpose in them, racism actually has a place. But the Christian worldview, in contrast, presents an entirely different and totally satisfying alternative story. I want you to write this down. I want you to see, and I don't think this is a horrible definition, but it's not a biblical definition of what racism is. The world defines racism as a belief that race is the primary determinant of human traits and capacities 
and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. And that's how the world defines racism. But it is woefully inadequate and complete and incomplete. And here's the reason why. From a Christian biblical worldview, we have an entirely different definition. And listen to this. H.P. Smith put it this way, and then I'll give it to you in Josh's Living Translation, is he defines racism this way. In short, racism, from the Christian standpoint, is a response that violates the egalitarian principle implied in the biblical doctrine of the Imago Dei. Now, that's just fancy theological talk for this. Put this down. Racism is any response that violates the biblical doctrine that God created everyone in his image. Okay? So we have a foundationally different view when it comes to people. We don't see you as an accident and you have certain traits because of biological, natural evolution. We actually see this. There's something more foundational and fundamental to every person and that each individual is created in the image of God. And not to respect that, all right, and some feature or trait of yours, consider it inferior or superior, is a violation of what we call the Imago Dei, being made in the image of God. And that is racism. And let me tell you, the world cannot offer you that definition and that objective value. Racism includes not just the oppression of another race, but the mocking of another race. Why? Think about this. To ridicule someone created in the image of God is to ridicule you. who? God. 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 So according to the Bible, and this is, I think, a, a fascinating question. I've learned so much this week, and trust me, I had to get it all down to where I can present something. Where do the races come from? Why are we so different then? It's a valid question. Now, the function of today's text is not primarily to explain the origin of races. Remember that. The, the purpose of why this text was written was not to explain the origin of races. It's in this text, but not written for that purpose. As you'll see, what happens in today's text catalyzes racial differences. It, it speeds it up. Okay? Note, Moses is the writer of the book of Genesis. And Moses was not alive for any of the book, any of the events in the book of Genesis. He doesn't actually come onto the scene until the book of Exodus. Everything that he is writing in Genesis is under the inspiration and revelation of the Holy Spirit. And no doubt, uh, parents passed many of these stories on to their children, and he recorded some of those as well. While Genesis includes the origin of humanity and sin, the original audience of Genesis, keep this in mind, I want you to read it from this perspective, is a nation, a nation of Israelites who had just been miraculously freed by God from the slavery in Egypt. So remember, that's the initial audience. A nation of slaves, and this nation is Israel, that's just been freed from Egypt. That's the original audience. Genesis, then, is primarily functioning to introduce that nation to the God that just delivered them. 
Think of it like that. It's to describe the origin of that nation and why they have this special relationship to the creator of the universe. Why would Yahweh, the God of Israel, intervene on behalf of one nation? In Genesis 1 through 11, the Bible deals with humanity in general. You'll find it. It just speaks of humankind. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 12, it zeroes in on the nation of Israel. Why? Why did God all of a sudden go, and I'm going to talk and work with these people? Genesis 11 explains why. Look at Genesis 11, uh, verses 1 through 5 first. It says this, The whole earth at this time have the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, now just to put you into perspective, this is after Noah's, Noah's ark's flood. Everybody's familiar with that story. And his family, okay, they're coming down from Mount Ararat where the, where the ark rested and they're starting to repopulate the earth, okay? So at this time, though, everybody has one language, okay? As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They use brick for stone and asphalt or tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Now, this is fascinating. What I first want to do is just explain scene one. This is act one. And I've entitled it, Humanity Ascending, with a question mark. (laughs) Humanity Ascending. Notice here that as they go down, they settle in a valley or a plain called Shinar. Now, Shinar, if you want to know where that's at today, and there should be a map uh, in the Bible app and probably showing you on the screen. It's a region in modern-day Baghdad, Iraq, uh, to the Persian Gulf, okay? It really sits right up above the Persian Gulf. But the point that's interesting in this text is that that area is low. It's a valley. It's a plain. It's not a mountainous area. Now, why does that matter in Old Testament scriptures? It's because the ancients, those who lived during this day, believed that deities dwelled in high places. You'll hear about this, the high places, and associated the gods with hills or mountains, these high places, with the mountain's base being planted to the earth, and then from their perspective, it reaching into the sky, the heavens, a mountaintop was the meeting point of heaven and earth. Because of this, people viewed the mountain as the place of divine residence and activity. And remember that. You're going to see that all throughout the Old Testament. Remember, the temple sits on what in Jerusalem? A mount. We go up to the temple. That's not just directional. They mean that spiritually as well. Uh, It's always Mount Zion, right? Uh, You'll find other mounts. Mount Sinai is where God visited them. So this was prevalent understanding that if you want to reach God, you got to get high, right? High in the sky. But what happens when you come to a low place? It's a valley. And here's what they did. They built what's called a temple tower. 
And this is known all throughout the ancient Near East. They're called ziggurats. Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. And it is technically a substitute mountain. That's what this is. The Tower of Babel, this temple tower, is a ziggurat. It's a step pyramid, and, and there's a picture of it in your Bible app and, and probably appearing on the screen, with a shrine at the top reserved for a divine being. From a ziggurat's top, heaven seemed closer. It was a stairway to heaven using the very latest construction materials, brick and mortar. Now, what is exactly wrong with building a ziggurat? A couple of things. Number one, I want you to notice what the text says. They said, first, let us make a name for who? Ourselves. The first sin that we see, and it could be a, comple- uh, a complexity of these sins, but is pride or self-exaltation. Pride or self-exaltation. By building the tower, the people sought to make their own name or their reputation great instead of God's name. I mean, If you're going to go about reaching God... The last thing you want to do is steal glory from him. Okay? So they were doing this in their name. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's reach God and say we did it. That's not going to happen. Number two, there is a sin or direct disobedience. And this is important to remember. I purposely left it out till here. God commanded both Adam and Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Catch this, you may want to write this down. God's original intent was always that humanity would scatter and fill the earth. Okay? Scatter and fill. That's a part of God's mandate. By attempting to avoid being scattered. What does it say right there? So that we won't be scattered. They built this to make a name for themselves in direct disobedience to God. Okay? We're not going to fulfill this mandate, the creation mandate, and we're going to all hunker down right here and not go fill the earth. And then the last thing that we see is a false worship or religion, a false worship or false religion. That's the third sin. Attempting to ascend to heaven associates the sin of the people of Babel just as Adam and Eve we're trying to be like God in Genesis 3, 5. Remember, oh, it was pleasing. The fruit, the forbidden fruit was pleasing to the eyes, able to make one wise. And the serpent made this deceitful promise, you'll be like God. And in a very similar way, here we see all the families of the earth trying to do what? We're going to reach God on our own terms. We're going to event, essentially storm heaven. We're going to do it. We're going to ascend. Now you say... What's that have to do with you and me? We, all of us, share the sinful conditions with our ancestors. These are our ancestors, according to the Bible. We are prideful and vain. We exalt ourselves over and against God. We day after day directly disobey God's commands written on our conscience and in His book, God's Word. And then, after the things we either done against God or left undone that we should have done, we either in our pride think we can make things right with God or in our guilt feel like we must make things right with God. And so we convince ourselves 
we got to climb back to God. No, you don't. I just want you to realize right now how futile your thinking is if you think you can reach heaven. It's impossible. Okay? So, what do we need? We need God to descend to us. That's the difference. We need Him to come to us. Okay? He doesn't need us to come to Him, by the way. Let me show you why. Look at Genesis eleven five. It says, Then the Lord, and that's in all caps, that's the tetragrammaton. It stands for the name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. Then Yahweh came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. I'll explain that more in a minute. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord, Yahweh, scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon, which is an amazing note. Just remember that because that will show up much, much later throughout the scriptures. For there the Lord, Yahweh, confused the language of the whole earth. And from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. The next thing that I want you to see, and this is awesome, is God descending. God descending. Verse 5 is so ironic. I love this verse. Do you catch what's happening? Humans sought to build a tower into the heavens, and yet verse 5, it reads this way. It's like God, God, Yahweh couldn't see it, and he had to come down to look at it. Like, what is it down? What are you doing down there? Are you trying to reach me? <laughs> Does that see, see the point? Let me come down there and take a look at it. I can't see it from my throne. All right? You really think you're going to reach me? So he comes down, and please understand this. This one time we talk about heaven come down. This is he's coming down in judgment and in evaluation. This isn't a good thing. Here he decides after he sees what they're doing. And again, we're using this to explain it how we would see it. God knows all that's going on, but he's just showing the utter bankruptcy. I've got to come down and take a good look at this. That's how far you've got. Okay? God desires to impede their cooperation to prevent them from getting better at sin. That's the point. All things are possible for them. And the point was this. We tend to think as humans, well, all things are possible. We'll do good. Ladies and gentlemen, think about how every time we get new tech and we think about all the good things we're going to do with that new tech, and they're like, oh, we have nuclear energy. We can power the world. Or we can destroy ourselves. Right? I just talked about this a minute ago. Hey, we've got internet. You can communicate with everybody. People can be educated. And, and we can send the gospel. And yet we fill it with pornography. Right? This is the point. He's going, oh, they'll, they'll accomplish much. But it'll be for their own destruction. I can't let this continue. So he impedes their progress. And then he says something amazing. He says, let us. Let us confuse their languages. Now, I would have said, probably up until this week, and, and I'm not denying the doctrine of the Trinity, okay, so please catch what I'm about to say, is that he is referring to the Trinitarian persons. Let us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come down and confuse their languages. 
But I do think either in this instance or possibly in all the instances in Genesis 1 through 11 where he says, let us. I haven't quite decided yet. But it could reflect a, the concept of what they call this heavenly council in the sense of it's like the angels are standing there and he goes, let us go confuse their language. Uh, the way one uh, commentator put it this way is, I don't know if you've ever been sitting in your living room and mom says, mom says, uh, let's make dinner. And she's the only one that gets up and goes in the kitchen. And my mama's like, yeah, we've done that. That's kind of the idea. Hey, let's go confuse their languages. And then Yahweh gets up and goes and does it. But here's why this is important. I was asked a question another week. What language does God speak? Or what is the language of heaven or the angelic language? I wanted just to make a note of this. Number one, this was in the context of speaking in tongues. All I'm saying, I'm not saying that uh, heaven doesn't have a language. I just don't believe that the gift of speaking in tongues is angelic language. All right? But here's what's amazing. I will share this with you. Um, the angels can communicate with humans. That's clear. Right? They carry messages for God all the time. But also, according to Jewish, uh, you need to pay attention to this, pseudopigrapha. Okay? Now, this is Paul's. Let me just say this for a second. That's Jewish writings that are ascribed to various biblical patriarchs like Enoch and all these other guys uh, who were not even alive when they were composed. It's, it's basically uh, it's like false scripture. All right? But the reason why it's important to at least look at that is it at least tells you what was on the minds of people and how they sometimes understood these events. And it's interesting that in Genesis 11, the angels are the ones that come down and teach these 70 families, if you go look in Genesis 10, each their own respective language. And the angels are responsible for that. So whether that's the case or not, I just want you to know this. I do think angels can speak languages. I don't think language, uh, angels must speak languages. They don't have to. They may communicate differently than us. But at least it's clear that the ancients thought that they were very uh, fluent in all types of human language, okay, which is really interesting. Now, what does that have to do with race? <laughs> okay, let me get to this part. What does that have to do with race? Some, and I, I, I want to ask this question, has anyone, I know I have heard it in my own light, lifetime as a possible alternative to where races come from, has, and don't be afraid, like if you've heard this, this is what I'm trying to say is, acknowledge it, there's no evil in acknowledging that you've heard this. Um, have heard that black Africans have come due to the curse of Ham, Noah's sons. Anybody ever heard that at all, or am I the only one? I'm very, okay, I got one or two, because I've heard it before, all right? And here's the way this goes. There, Ham was a son of Noah, and Noah cursed Ham. And there is a theology that was developed in the South during slavery that said that Ham was cursed and he became black and his descendants settled in Africa and it was used to justify white Europeans' enslavement of black Africans. And I need you to understand, Southern Baptists are also responsible for pushing this, okay? Now, let me tell you, I want you to hear this before I get to the explanation from Genesis 11. That is patently false. Amen. It's laws. It's laws. And let me explain three things real quick. Number one, the word ham that they say means black. 
comes from possibly an Egyptian word that means black. But let's just think about this. Ham lived before there was ever an Egypt. So how is it that he's named after a word that doesn't even exist yet? Number two, even if he was named black, it could be. That is like hair was black, right? What makes it mean that his skin color is black? And then the third issue, which is, this is the part where people do not read their Bibles. Okay, the church doesn't. They listen to a pastor and don't read their Bibles. Noah doesn't curse Ham. Noah curses Ham's youngest son, Canaan. Go look, go read all of Genesis 9 and find where the curse of Ham is. You won't find it. He curses the Canaanites. That's clear. You'll, everybody understands if you've read your Bible all at once. Oh, were they under a curse? They come under God's judgment from his people Israel, her descendants of Shem. So uh, the reason why I point this out is this tells you how far the human heart and its greed will go to justify things. We will pervert and twist the scriptures to say something that they ne- You won't find it. And yet it was said throughout the South. And I've heard it in my lifetime. So where do the, the races come from? Now notice this. God does not confuse races here. It's not what he does. He doesn't make people yet red, yellow, black, and white at Babel. What does he confuse? It's important to note it. He confuses what? Languages. Languages. Ah, you're following me. He miraculously changes the dialects enough so that they're incomprehensible to one another and they can no longer cooperate with ease. Now, this is both a punishment and a provision. It's both a punishment and a provision. God punishes their vainglory, their rebellious unity and false religion. But in punishing them, what does it cause them to do after they're confused? What do they go do? They scatter. This is important. They actually get to obeying. And hasn't God done this before? Like, okay, you can do it on your own, or I can make you do it. Right? So you've been told to scatter and fill the earth from Adam. I told you in Genesis 9, Noah, tell his family to scatter. I finally punished them, and guess what they go do? They scatter. Now, after this is all said and done, and I'll get back to that scattering, the word Babel or Babylon is amazing. From the Babylonian perspective, they understand the word Babel to mean the gate of God. Do you know what it means in the Hebrew, though? Confusion. I need you to see how night and day, from a biblical worldview versus a Another worldview, they see this as this is the way humanity ought to function. This is the gate to God. And we look at it and go, confusion. It's confusion. That's not the way God created humanity. God is not waiting for us. Listen to this. This should comfort you, bring you peace and joy. God does not need us to build a tower to Him. Okay? He came down and put himself on a tree for us. Okay? This is what's so amazing. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 11. This is why I I presented that whole story. That was all introduction. Just to tell you this. Remember at Pentecost, after Jesus Christ died and bled for sin and rose from the grave and promised his followers, his disciples who believed in him, 
that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and they're able to speak in various dialects. They preach the gospel to everyone that's in, within their sound of their voice. They can hear it in their own words. And listen to what they do in Acts 2.11. It says this, Cretans and Arabs, that's some of the people they spoke to, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. Acts chapter 2 is the complete reversal of the Tower of Babel. Babel was about us, 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 right? We'll get to God on our own in direct defiance of Him. And here, notice what happens. After God makes gracious provision for their sin, He fills them with the Spirit and then enables them not to reverse the languages, right? He wants the diversity. We're going to see that. I want all the languages, but I want the gospel in every language. I want the good news that I've come down to reach every person on the whole earth. Write this down. This is what we have to take away from Genesis 11 and Acts 2.11. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, scatters a unified, diverse church. What a unique thing. The Holy Spirit scatters us. We're, you and I are commanded to go all over the world and we're doing this with united mission and message to make much of Jesus. And yet, listen church, He wants us all different. Not uniform. Thank God you're not like me and I'm not like you. We don't need a million Josh Taylors, trust me. My wife would go really crazy. God wants the unified diversity scattered across the earth. The Holy Spirit causes a type of confusion at Pentecost, if you go on to read it. And the reason is this, is they're overcome with the reversal of Babel. That's the confusion, going, this can't be happening. People don't speak other people's languages like this, this fluently. But the Holy Spirit empowered them to do it. Jesus Christ, this is what's so amazing. Why did Genesis 11 all of a sudden sweep in Genesis 12, this is what's so awesome. I love this picture. Is the nations are scattering out from Babel. Essentially, God has just disinherited the whole world. Right? Sent you away. And as they're walking away, you just keep reading Genesis 11. And this is, I'm using my sanctified imagination. God steps up. This is like the first time I've stepped away from the pulpit. <laughs> in like weeks. If you flip over to Genesis 12. He goes, hey, Abraham, come here. The reason why that's important is this. He makes a promise, a covenant to Abraham. Abraham, what they wanted to do, I'm going to give you a land, make you a great nation, and listen to what he says, and I'll bless all the families of the earth. All the one. Remember, he just scattered all the families. So in one moment, he literally disinherits the whole world, and then in the next page, you flip it over. He goes over and goes, Abraham, come here. I want to bless them. This is the, this is the God we serve. There's mercy in his judgment. There's compassion. He goes, I got, I got to make a, at least one way they can get back to me. And think about this, and that's when all the nation of Israel, as their slaves, they go, I know Father Abraham. It lets the church of the Old Testament know this is your job to represent Yahweh to the world and the world to Yahweh so that He might bless them. And that's our job now as the New Covenant Church. 
We're that one people that's been left here on the earth to let you know God is here to bless you. He's not here to curse you. But we must repent of our sin and trust Christ, His only Son, as our Savior. I love this. While we don't have the same language or same ethnic heritage, we all can have the same Jesus. The same exact Jesus. So where do races come from? The Bible is silent. You don't, the Bible doesn't tell you. But here's where it comes from. And it's implied in all of this. Races result from natural adaptations from scattering. That's where they come from. If you take a group of people and you isolate them due to language and put them in a particular place, over many hundreds of years, they're going to look and act and talk different. We do it in the South, right? Now just multiply that. Now here's the part that I want you to think about. This is what's amazing. Let's pause a minute. Was scattering a part of the punishment of Babel? No. It was the result. Scattering or filling the earth was a part of the mandate in Genesis 1 and 9. I need you to understand this, church. God had races in mind from the very beginning. He wanted us different. That in Adam, this generic man, had all the races in him. We can't deny that. Because also this, to deny that everybody came from Adam also means this. Jesus only died for the sons of Adam. Do you understand that? In Adam we all die. In Christ we all live again. We are all scattered from Adam. That's all it is. And we're all made in the image of God. Now you would say this. Well, why? Why would God do that? Why would God want us all different? I don't think that races are an accident. I think they have always been a part of God's plan and purpose. Races are not a problem. They're God's gift. Sin is what explains the confusion and racism. Only Jesus, the Son of God, can forgive sin, change the human heart, and grant eternal life through His shed blood, sacrificial death, and His resurrection to immortality and incorruptibility. Catch what I'm about to say. Avoiding diversity of ethnicities does not glorify God. Avoiding them. Okay? But embracing them does. It does, because it's a part of his original plan. Unity in diversity glorifies God. That's what he wants. The ultimate picture, and this is what I believe from the foundation of the world, before he even said, let there be light, the vision that that God had in his mind is what we read all throughout the book of Revelation, that there is a church from every tribe, language, people, and nation praising God singing a new song to him and blessing his holy name. That's what he wants. And that's what we must strive for. Natural and social evolution cannot give you the explanatory power and satisfaction of the biblical doctrine of the Imago Dei and the Genesis mandate to fill the earth. Not only that, not only can the Bible, our story, situate us in the present, help us to understand why all the strife, okay? The Christians, you have an answer. Open your Bible. 
Not only do we have an answer to explain where did races come from, where did racism come from, but here's the bigger part. We have the solution in our story too, okay? The gospel not only makes sense of the world we live in, but also here's what the gospel does. It humbles man, glorifies God, makes much of Jesus, Because of the gospel, we no longer boast in our flesh and what we can do, but we boast in the spirit. Because of the gospel, we don't need to build some gateway to God to ascend to heaven. Instead, in the gospel, heaven came down and glory fills our soul, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the shepherd and the gate of his red, yellow, black, and white sheep. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. The church reason you say, why are you talking to us about racism, right? And I know it's a, a cultural hot spot right now. But I think it's so important in these times to equip the church with what we call a Christian biblical worldview. It's what Brother Rick was mentioning just now. That, stop listening to all the stories And you need to know fundamentally what the Bible says about it. Okay? So the couple of things I want to encourage you to do. Number one, if you're listening and today you recognize you're a sinner. And there is no way for you to go to heaven. Literally, the Bible says, all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. No matter what temple tower you build, metaphorically, you will never get to heaven by working. You won't. The gospel is a gospel of grace. God comes and does something for us that we do not deserve. He came down, shed his blood and died on the cross for all of our sins and was raised to immortality and incorruptibility to prove he can grant us forgiveness and eternal life. And if you're ready to call upon Jesus, it says all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God wants a remnant of every family from the earth to be in heaven with him. And if you want to receive Jesus as your Savior and God, I want to teach you to pray and call out to him. Will you pray this silently in your heart? God's not dead. He hears our faults and whispers. Just say this. Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I deserve all your judgment. But I believe your gospel. That you love me that you came down for me, that you lived a perfect life, that you shed your blood and you died on the cross for all my sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Change my heart and grant me eternal life. I give my life to you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to do the next step in our relationship with God. And that's baptism. You're actually going to witness it later today. Baptism is where we go public with this private confession and commitment to Jesus. Baptism shows that when we go under the water, where we're saying we identify and believe in Jesus' death for our sins, and when we come up out of the water, we're saying we identify and believe in Jesus' resurrection for our forgiveness, a changed life, and eternal life. And if you've never been baptized, you can fill out that tariff panel, drop it in the offering box. You can text BELIEVE to our text and church number or visit our website and click on baptism and fill out the form. And you're not signing up. You're just giving me the chance to talk to you more about it. Will you do that? The second thing is this. We're going to have a time of...
meditation and reflection on the Word of God. You can go ahead, Stacy. And I want to again read a prayer that I've adapted from Stephen McGee's book of prayers on this text. And it says this, Lord of heaven and earth, we have sinned against you. If you left us without your grace, we would seek only to make a name for ourselves and continue to resist glorifying you. You have granted us great abilities that we should not use to build a little building dedicated to our small desires. You have helped us by the Holy Spirit to see glorifying and enjoying you forever is the most worthy goal. In your good plan to save man, you called out from all the families of the earth, Father Abraham. You brought him and Sarah out of barrenness and idolatry and made them believers in your covenant promises that we also hold dear. Promises which are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ our Lord. May all the nations, tribes, and tongues bless your name. To you only is due all dominion, power, and glory now in our days and forevermore. Will you pray this kind of prayer now to our great God and King Jesus? confess any sin or the response that would violate that Imago Day. Lord, that we, we thank you, we rejoice with you that you created every person in your image and that you desire a scattered, unified, diverse church. May we long to see that here on earth, that we can taste it a little bit before we join you with the church in heaven. We thank you for always making a way for us and your great compassion that even when we sin against you, when we hold our fist high against you, that you've always made a way of repentance and safety, rescue, salvation and forgiveness. We give you glory for that. And Lord, I ask that you bless every person here and who's watching, Father that you would use them to be a messenger of the gospel of peace. Peace with you and peace with others in Jesus' name. We thank you, Jesus, for your shed blood that unites us in you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming down and empowering us to scatter 
May we go and fulfill your mission of bringing all peoples and families back to you. We thank you to the glory of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. And thank you so much for being here with us today. I want to encourage you just to do a couple of things. Again, take, a, take the second to either fill out that tear-off panel or um, text RSVP to church and go ahead and let us know uh, which dates that you'll be able to be here. I know during the summertime, people are vacationing, traveling back and forth, and we want to do our best to consolidate services if we can uh, so that we can be together or if we need to provide uh, different ways in which we can social distance. So uh, RSVP and the absolute latest, I will make a call on uh, Thursday night. So you need to RSVP at the latest by uh, Thursday so I can make an informed decision. Uh, but again, thank you so much for, for being here. I do want to encourage you, you kind of know the drill by now, that we, we ask and invite everyone to fellowship outside. So as soon as we're finished, if you can do that, and then uh, with our greeters and uh, can wipe down the area so that our next service are ready. And, uh, and please, I do want to encourage you, go home. Even if, when 11 o'clock comes, the baptism will take place in the first five minutes of the service. Uh, get online, give a thumbs up, and, and, and celebrate what God is doing uh, in the lives of his people here at Mount Carmel Baptist Church, all right? I hope you have a great Sunday. I love you guys. Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in one last song? Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.